Ephesians is one of the grandest of books in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's main epistles. It's after the Gospels and several of his letters. It's about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. And this morning we will be focusing on chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. But as has been our practice the last two weeks, we're going to read once again together this whole one wonderful long sentence of praise from the Apostle Paul that begins at verse 3 and takes us to the end of our text in verse 14. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use this your word. Use your word in our midst that we might be changed. By the power of your spirit, Lord, meet with us. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Help us to understand our duty to you. And in all things, O Lord, create in us the desire to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Now we are concluding this first main section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As I've mentioned to you several times, it is one very long sentence in the Greek. 
Paul is so overcome and overwhelmed with a desire to praise the great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he keeps piling up words and phrases on top of each other. It makes it difficult for our English translators. If you look down at your translation, you will see that not only is Paul's one sentence taken up by several sentences in the English, it's actually two paragraphs in English. And now we are coming to the point where Paul is about to move on to the application of salvation. He is about to praise the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it should not be lost upon us that in this great sentence of praise, Paul honors and praises all three persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oftentimes... We neglect the work of the Holy Spirit. It's because the work of the Holy Spirit can be hard to understand. It can be difficult to see. It is on some level mysterious. But Paul here lays out for us very clearly aspects of our salvation and the work of God that are due to the work of the Spirit. And this helps us to understand the Spirit and to honor and glorify Him. Three things I would like us to see from the end of Paul's sentence here. The first is we will see the Spirit is the one who applies our salvation. The Spirit is the one who finishes off our salvation, who makes sure that the plan of God and the work of Jesus Christ come to fruition in our lives. The second thing that we will see is that the Spirit does not just work in individuals. He works in the entire body of Christ. And the Spirit is the one who builds the church. And the third thing we see on a more practical note for us, for comfort and assurance, is that the Spirit seals our salvation. The Spirit is the one who seals our salvation and gives us assurance. Well, let's begin then this morning by looking at how the Spirit applies our salvation. The beginning of our text in verse 11 begins with a familiar phrase. It's a very short phrase, but it is perhaps the deepest theological phrase that Paul uses in all of his writings. It is the phrase, in Him, or in Christ. And Paul starts out here with a continual reminder to us of our standing in Jesus Christ. This first chapter has seen emphasis upon each person of the Trinity's emphasis in salvation. How the Father plans and decrees our salvation. How the Son purchases our redemption on the cross. And even now as we look at the Holy Spirit applying our redemption, we have to understand that our standing is in Christ. Paul repeats it over and over again. We see it in verse 3, in Christ. We see it in verse 4. We see it again in verse 7. We see it again in verse 10. And here in verse 11. And what we have to understand is that our standing is in Jesus Christ and we have a relationship with the Trinity because of Christ. It is because of who we are in Christ that we have redemption And we have a relationship with God. And so now Paul moves to the application of salvation. And he says that in him we have obtained an inheritance. 
Paul says that we have an inheritance because we have been brought into God's family. He's earlier told us that we were predestined to adoption, and now he tells us we are predestined to an inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know what an inheritance is like, don't you? It's something that is usually passed down from our parents or from close family members. It's something that is not ours, but that has been in our family, perhaps even for generations. And it comes down to us through the decree and will of those who have gone before us. But you see, there is a challenge with inheritance, humanly speaking. You can be in someone's will to inherit their classic car, or perhaps their home, or perhaps some mementos. But you know that at the very last moment, that could be changed. The the will could be changed, and you could be struck from the inheritance, and you would get nothing. We all hear stories, perhaps humorously shown on entertainment and theater, of Someone who takes all of their worldly goods and changes at the last moment and leaves it to their cat. Or to some stranger. And the family's left wondering, where's our inheritance? But you see, this is not how God works. God grants to us an inheritance, Paul says. He predestines us to it. It's before the foundation of the world and it is secure in Christ. We can never be struck from the will because Christ will not be struck from the will. And all of our inheritance is found in Jesus. You see, Paul says we have something to look forward to, something that is laid up for us. But he also says that right now we are in possession of it. We have obtained it. Now, this verb here that is used by Paul is an interesting verb. Obtained an inheritance is actually only one verb in the Greek. And it can be translated one of two ways. The first is how our English Standard Version translates it. That we have obtained an inheritance. We get an inheritance. But it could equally be translated, and some translations do this, we are an inheritance. That is, we are God's inheritance and portion. Now, I don't think as he wrote this, the Apostle Paul was worrying about how an English translator several thousand years from then would have difficulty translating his language. I think Paul was more concerned to express the truth of God as given to him by the Spirit of God. And I think this word is intentionally vague. It intentionally has a dual meaning. We do indeed obtain an inheritance, but at the same time, we are God's inheritance. We are his portion and his lot. This is consistent consistent with the Old Testament view of the people of God. Deuteronomy 7 puts it this way. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now stop and think about that for a moment. When the pastor tells you that you have a glorious inheritance carried up for you in heaven because of Christ, that makes you feel glad and joyous, doesn't it? 
It makes you even feel a bit special. But now think about the fact that what Paul is telling you is not only do you have an inheritance, you are God's prized possession. God prizes you more than anything else in all of the universe. You are his prized possession in Christ. If you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if your sins have been forgiven, then you are God's prized possession, a part of his people. And Paul tells us that this is something that comes wholly of God. We had been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. You see, it was predestined, decided beforehand. God didn't wait to see how you would turn out. He wasn't waiting to see if you were worthy to be a part of his inheritance. This is not something that happened by chance. You see, sometimes I think we believe that even our salvation came to us by means of chance. We just happen to have a Bible at hand, just happen to flip open to a passage, just happen to bump into someone who spoke to us of the Lord Jesus Christ, just happened to be born into a family that taught us the Scriptures. But you see, Paul says that is not true. From before the foundations of the world and of time itself, God had planned to set His love upon His people and to gather them to Himself as a special possession and treasure. And you see, this is humbling. It is humbling that even though we may feel special about this, we have no worth at all to bring to this. It's not because of how much Bible we know, or how smart we are, or how well-behaved we are, or how good our manners are, or how kind we are to others. None of that means anything, because it is before we were even in existence, God set His love upon us. You see, salvation... Is from God. This is the purpose of God. He had specifically planned this and set this forth. This is what Paul means when he uses the word, the purpose of him, of God. The purpose of God is what he sets forth. He lays out. It is clear and open for all to see. And this should not surprise us because Paul tells us he is the one who has purpose and works all things according to his will. There is nothing that is outside of the will of God. There is nothing over which God does not have sovereignty. And this also is a great comfort for us. For we know that nothing is out of His control. God enacts His will. And He works upon all things. Including His people. And this work is the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember John chapter 3 when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about what it meant to be born again? Jesus puts it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God is enacting the will of God on the people of God. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know why it is coming, but we know it is the work of God in our midst. 
This is what we call, theologically, the effectual call. You see, it is the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and our ears to hear and see the truth of God's Word. There is an external call that goes out all the time. You hear it each Lord's Day from this pulpit. To repent of your sins, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in Him and to know forgiveness. But that call goes out at random to all. And have you ever wondered why some respond to that call and others do not? Some hear the words of the Bible and don't think about them anymore. Some hear a call to repentance and turn away. But you see, it is not in who they are, in their level of understanding or even their circumstances of their life. It is in the Holy Spirit and His work in the life of the believer, making that call effectual. It is the Spirit of God who gives faith. Paul will lay this out in greater detail in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, we have faith and it is the gift of God. Now, if we think about it, this is necessary because of who we are. If outside of Christ we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If outside of Christ we need exactly what we do not want. To submit to the Lord and to find forgiveness in Jesus. Then the only way that we can believe is if the work of God is in our midst. If God gives us a new heart. If he gives us minds that understand. If he gives us eyes that see and ears that hear. Now, how does the Spirit of God do this? He does this, Paul says, through the word of truth. That is the gospel of your salvation. We see this in verse 13. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, this is not just a theory. It's not just something in the abstract. We must hear the word of Christ, we must believe on the word of Christ. No one is saved, no one sees their sins forgiven in theory or abstractly. They must embrace Jesus Christ in all of who he is and believe upon him. Yet the question comes, how can we possibly do that? We who are enemies with God. The answer, Paul says, is that the Spirit brings the word to us. It is not just that God speaks. And that, in and of itself, is remarkable enough. That the Lord our God deigns to condescend and to speak to us. No, even beyond that, God speaks truth to us. And God the Holy Spirit speaks truth to us that is applied to our hearts so that we would believe upon it and be changed by it. This word of truth is exactly what we need. Do you see how Paul defines the word of truth? He says the word of truth is the good news. The word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. It's not truth in the sense of metaphysical certainty. It's not truth in the sense of mathematics or science or grammar. No, it is truth that we need. It is the good news of the gospel that is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. You see, salvation comes from outside of us. 
we need the Spirit to bring it to us. And the Spirit is the one who makes the Word of God alive in us. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter. Since you have been born again, that is, made alive, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. James puts it slightly differently. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. You see, God Himself, by His Word, applied in our lives, by the work of the Spirit, gives us life. You see, the Word of God is not only alive, it is life-giving. It brings us to the point of belief and life. This is God's work, that we would hear the Word and that we would believe the Word. It is the same Spirit of God who writes the Word of God who makes it effectual in our lives. And this tells us at least two things. First, it should impress upon us the importance of the Bible, how much we need the Bible, how it is the vehicle that God the Spirit uses to bring us to life and to nourish us. And then secondly, it should remind us of the importance of the Spirit's work that we cannot live a single day without the work of the Holy Spirit. That just as if we need the Scriptures to guide us into all truth and to help us through times of trouble, we can only get that guidance from the Scriptures. We can only get that hope from the Bible through the Holy Spirit. This is His work daily in our lives. But the Spirit does not only work on individuals. He is also building up God's people. It is the Spirit who builds the church. And the most obvious way that we see Him building the church here in our passage is through the unity that He brings in Christ to the church. Paul here in our passage is describing the wonder of God's people, all that they have received and all that they are. Now I want you to stop for just a moment and think about where people find their importance today. Isn't it true that for so much of the world, people find their importance wrapped up in their own identity of who they are? What their nationality is. Where they grew up. What their job is. How they think politically. How they think socially. And they tend to gravitate toward people who think like them, act like them, want the things that they want. We each have our own cable news channel. We each have our own sports channel. We each have our own everything. Perhaps the most ridiculous example of this that I can think of is what happens anytime anyone on the internet talks about a smartphone. You just wait for it in the comments, don't you? You can tell exactly everyone who says the only phone you could ever buy, ever, is an Apple iPhone. And you have to do that because I've done that and everyone should be like me. Which is quickly countered by the only phone you should ever buy, ever, is an Android. And that's because that's what I've bought. And you should be like me. And if we can be so divided by something as silly as a phone, think about the divisions that are found in our world over so many other layers. But you see, what Paul is saying here is the Spirit builds up the church of Jesus Christ across all boundaries, 
The church is a people of all nations. And Paul does this for us. He highlights it through the use of his pronouns. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says, So that we, who were the first to hope, And then in verse 13, he changes. He says, in him, you also. And then back in verse 14, he comes back to we. He says that we acquired possession of it. What's Paul doing here? Is he forgetting who's in his audience? Is it we? Is it you? Is it we? No, I think what Paul is doing here is describing for us the nature of the church. The first we refers to believers who are Jewish. Those who have grown up in the covenant. Those who have known the promises of God for generations, generations to come. Those who know the Old Testament history and the Bible. The apostles and Paul himself, they were the ones who first believed, who first hoped on Christ. And Paul wants us To get a picture of what this means, he actually, after a fashion, invents a word. This phrase, the first to hope in Christ, is actually one word. There's a verb that means to hope. And there's a preposition that means before or first. And Paul jams them together to make one word. So you first hoped. You were the first ones. And this word can have really two connotations. The first is that the Jewish believers hoped first before the Gentiles were brought into the church. Before the day of Pentecost. Before the doors to the church were flung wide open to all of the nations and all of the tribes. But there's a second connotation as well. Those Jewish believers, Abraham, Moses, David, Hezekiah... They hoped and believed on Christ before they knew who the Christ was. They knew that they needed Christ, but they didn't know his name would be Jesus of Nazareth. They hoped first. All of this is to the praise of God. This encompasses all of the history of the Old Testament. Then Paul turns to the Ephesian Gentiles. He does this. In verse 13, he says, In him you also. Now, the Ephesians are kind of the polar opposite of the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and in Palestine. They had a different culture, they had a different language, they were pagans, they were polytheists who believed in many, many gods. They did not know the scriptures from their youth. They did not have the Bible to read. They did not express the covenants of God in their family. They were separate and apart from God. And yet what Paul says here is, they also are in Christ. They have been brought in Christ, in together with those who have believed from the first. They're brought into the same family on the same terms. That is, they hear and they believe. And they are brought together. Now, we should praise God for His diverse grace. For you see, we are Gentiles. We are the recipients of this grace. 
We have been blessed by the doors to God's people being thrown wide open. We have been blessed to be gathered into the people of God, to be treated like the people of God from the days of Abraham, simply because of faith in Christ. Apart from this, we would be lost. And you see, Jesus cancels our sin, but he also breaks down the walls that separate us from others. This is a great truth that should have practical impact on our lives. We should act on this truth. You see, the more that we reach out to others, the more we are modeling the work of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit, isn't it, to build the church. It is the work of the Spirit to break down barriers. It is the work of the Spirit to unite the people of God. And as we do that, as we go out and preach the good news of the gospel... To people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and race. Of every economic strata. We are doing the Spirit's work and modeling the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit works through us. The key is faith in Christ. Now I have to tell you that as your pastor, we are indeed blessed with a great opportunity here. Just look around you for a moment. Do you know that in most churches, in most of the world, the congregation is completely monochromatic and of one culture? I don't mean just in middle-class America. I mean in Mexico. I mean in South America. I mean in Africa. I mean in Korea. In most of the world... We do not have the diversity that the Lord has blessed us with here in Katy, Texas. We have an opportunity to model the church as we have brothers and sisters that have been born all over the world who have all sorts of upbringings, who speak all sorts of languages. This is a great blessing that God has given to us. Don't take it for granted. Every time I get together with other PCA pastors... They are blown away by a small description of the diversity of God's people in our midst. Now, that's not because we're the best and the brightest. You didn't control who moved in down the street. It's because God, in His good pleasure and by His will, has brought here to Houston and Katy the nations and given us an opportunity in a small way to see the Spirit's work in building up the people of God. What a glorious blessing this is to us. We must show our unity in Christ. For after all, why does the Spirit do all of this? Paul tells us. He actually tells us twice in verse 12 and in verse 14. The Spirit builds up the body of Christ to the praise of Jesus' glory. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. It is not to glorify us and our deeds. It's not even to speak of himself and his own actions. The Spirit speaks of the works of Jesus. Jesus puts it this way in John 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And in chapter 16, 
When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. This should be a reminder to us of our purpose. We should not speak of ourselves and our own glories and our own actions. It should be a part of our everyday life to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. In ways small as well as large. When someone says to you, that was really well done how you did that. You could say, praise God. The Lord has been good to me. Not, yeah, you're right, I'm, I'm really pretty, pretty good, aren't I? Do you testify to the goodness of who Jesus is? You see, the Spirit works in us that we might be to Christ's glory. Look at verse 12. It is we who were the first to hope in Christ, who are to the praise of the glory of God. You see, the Spirit is working in your life right now so that you can be a living, breathing letter praising your Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing that Paul tells us is that the Spirit seals our salvation. Paul begins by saying that the Spirit is a guarantee. He says in verse 14, the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now this word here for guarantee is a commercial, a merchant's word. It actually originally comes from a Hebrew word that comes to the Greek through the Phoenicians. You may remember the Phoenicians were the ancient sailors and traders of the day. They were the the super truckers, if you will, of the ancient economy. They took everything all over the Mediterranean. And so this word comes to Greek, and Paul uses it. It's a word that means deposit, or down payment, or even a first installment. You would make a payment down on something. You know, when you go to go buy a house, you make a down payment on your house. When you go to buy a car, you make a down payment on the car. But how does that work? Do you make the down payment on the house, but not move in until you've paid it off? I hope not. I can't wait 15 or 30 years to live in a house. I can't be out on the street that long. It's cold. Do you go and put a down payment on a car and not drive it off the lot? No, it's yours because you've made the down payment. There's another way to think about this. Ladies, do you remember the day when your husband gave you the diamond ring? You weren't married that day, were you? But it was a down payment. A down payment on a promise. A promise to be with you in sickness and in health. A promise to be with you in plenty and in want. A promise to keep covenant with you. And I will tell you, it is no surprise that that guarantee, that deposit, is valuable. No man is going to hand a woman a ring And then a week later say, you know, I've given this a second thought. Just keep it, the ring, or throw it out. I don't really care. No. He gives you something that valuable 
to show the earnestness of the promise that it will be fulfilled. Have you ever wondered why the engagement ring is more costly than the wedding ring? It's because that down payment, that deposit, is a visible sign. A visible sign of a promise that will come to fulfillment. And Paul says that's what the Holy Spirit is for the believer. He is a guarantee of our salvation. And this is meant to encourage us. Paul calls him the promised Holy Spirit because he is the confirmation of all of God's promises. All of the promises of God in his word find their fulfillment in the work of the Spirit in our life. He himself was promised by the Old Testament prophets, by Joel in chapter 2, by Isaiah in chapter 44, and as we saw just some time ago, by Zechariah in chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. God is promising that he will give the spirit to his people. There's also a very practical aspect to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with struggles for believers. And he says, life is tough. I know you would like to leave behind this fleshly tabernacle or tent and to move into the perfect heavenly tent that God has prepared for you. That you want to leave aside sickness and pain, sin and sorrow. And Paul doesn't say, the Christian life is perfect, you won't know any problems. He doesn't say, don't worry about it, buck up. No, he says, I know we groan, but God has prepared for us the Spirit of God, given to us as a guarantee that we will get past these times of trouble. That as we live the Christian life, and as we doubt, and as we have pain, the Spirit of God is the guarantee from God Himself that there are better things coming. That glory is there. That Jesus will redeem us. This is the work of the Spirit of God. And this guarantee gives us assurance. The Spirit is our guarantee until we acquire possession, Paul says. We will acquire possession of our salvation. It is not all that we will receive, but it is a foretaste and importance. The second thing that we see here that the Spirit does is He seals God's people. There is a sealing that happens. Now, what is a seal? No, I don't mean a barking marine animal. Now, when you think of a seal, you have to go back to ancient days. And you think about a wax imprint covering the opening of a letter. It is something that is a mark to show possession. In ancient days when someone sent a letter to someone else, they would roll up a scroll and they would seal it with wax and imprint it with the insignia of their ring so that you would know it was from them and you would know it was genuine and you would know it had not been tampered with. This happens in other contexts too, don't they? If you ever watch one of the award shows when they decide who's the best actor or who wins the best musical, they bring out the envelope and it's always sealed so no one monkeys with it or changes it. They break the seal. That seal is there to show the reality, the truth. 
Seals primarily show that something is true or genuine. Think about your passport. On your passport, there is a seal from the United States government to show that it is a true passport. It has been issued by the proper authorities. When you have time this afternoon, take any denomination of money out of your wallet. You will see there is a seal of the United States on your money to show that it is real, it is genuine. If you have a diploma on your wall, you can go and look at that. It shows a seal that shows that it is a true diploma and reflects genuineness. The Spirit, Paul says, is God's mark on us that we are true believers. How good of God is it to not only give us grace, but to give us the proof that we have His grace? A second thing a seal does is it is used to mark one's property. Texans should be very familiar with this. How do you know they're your cattle and not someone else's cattle? By the seal, by the brand on the flesh of the cow, of the bull. You see, it's a marking to show possession. It's like the mark on a photograph taken by a professional photographer that shows that it is his or hers that they have done this. And what this means, Paul says, is that God is saying to us that we are His. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The third thing that a seal does is it makes something secure. You remember that after Jesus died upon the cross and was placed in the tomb, they rolled a really heavy stone in front of the opening? But they weren't trusting in just the stone or its heaviness. They put a seal on the tomb to make sure it was secure and that no one could get in. That's another way that a seal is used. And what God is telling us is that through the Holy Spirit, He wants us to be secure in Him. He doesn't want us to ever doubt His love. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1. You cannot ever be lost. We are sealed, Paul says in Ephesians 4, until the day of redemption. In conclusion, we praise God's work for us And in us. That praise is for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is telling us is that salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. And that causes him to break out in praise for the greatness of God and for the mercy that has been shown to him. Is that how you view your salvation? Can you... Are you unable to stop praising the Lord for what He has done and is doing in your life? The Apostle Paul gives us a good template for how we should think about who we are in Christ and what the Lord has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are indeed the One who works our salvation according to Your good pleasure and will. We thank you that that is the work of you, Father, 
and you, Son, and you, Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask this morning that you would not only remind us of the greatness of what you have done, but that you would cause us to praise you, to find our worth in you, O Lord. We thank you that we are found in Christ. And we ask that you would allow us the great privilege of glorifying Jesus in all that we do in our lives. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.